Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Jeremy McCain, and today I'll be guest hosting an interview with two very special guests. Ridwig Gupta is a machine learning research scientist from the University of California at Berkeley, and Fernando Paolo is a machine learning engineer with Global Fishing Watch. Ritwick and Fernando are going to discuss two upcoming events, AI plus HDAR 2021, an artificial intelligence for humanitarian assistance and disaster response workshop, and the XView3 challenge prize competition to identify the best computer vision algorithms to advance the fight against illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. So, I want to welcome both you guys, Ritwick and Fernando. To get started, maybe you could introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds and the work that you're focusing on. Ritwick, maybe we could start with you. Sure. My name is Ritwick Gupta. As Jeremy mentioned, at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm also the principal AI consultant at the Defense Innovation Unit, which is a Department of Defense USD R&E organization focused on the cutting edge innovation that's happening within our commercial sectors here in the United States and, and abroad. Prior to this, I ran a, a research lab at Carnegie Mellon focused on computer vision for humanitarian assistance and disaster response. I'm working very closely with the DoD at a place called the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon. And really my background's been all over the place. I had a strong focus in the world of bioinformatics, I had a couple of stints in industry working on a variety of different things, but Humanitarian assistance and disaster spawn is, is where my heart is at and really where core of my research is at as well. Amazing. Well, it's great to have you here. And Fernando, please tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you've been working on. Sure. Thank you, Jeremy. So I'm Fernando Paulo. I am a, currently a machine learning engineer working at Global Fishing Watch in the research division. So this organization mostly tracks and studies human activity at sea and the consequent impact that humans have in the environment, ocean environment, and more broadly, uh, climate environment. So in particular, what I do, because I'm part of the research team, is apply research, right? So we take approaches that from academia, for example, and we try to apply that at a global scale to this the particular, focusing particularly ocean environments and, and environmental change. So my background is actually in climate change research in particular geophysics. I came, before joining Global Fishing Watch, I was a scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's one reason why I moved to Pasadena and I live here at the moment. So there I was working with uh, remote sensing, uh, measuring how ice on earth has changed during the past decades and measuring the contribution to global sea level rise. So the focus of my research was always, you know, large scale environmental studies, in particular using remote sensing data. That is what brought me to Global Fishing Watch. Amazing. Well, I think this is really great. Thanks, Brent, for inviting me to kind of co-host with you. I'm the founder of something called the Ocean Currency Network. And Brent, you were so nice to to have me on your show a, a while back. And our philosophy is, you know, measurement as a service. Like that's what we need to do. We need to understand our marine environment and really, truly get near real time data as, as quickly as possible. So I think with all of us here today, one of the things that I often like to say is it's like, it's like, you know, when you're we're back in Hawaii, we have this talk story thing. I think there's just, we're going to be able to talk story about this topic 
topic because there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination here. Um, I guess the first thing I, I'd like to talk about, Ritwick, is this XFU competition. Maybe for those of us who aren't familiar, could you tell us a little bit about this XFU competition, what it actually is, or the challenge rather, and what you hope to achieve out of it? Absolutely. So the XP3 challenge is something that we recently launched. We being the Defense Innovation Unit partnered with the Global Fishing Watch, um, supported by NOAA, Coast Guard, NIMEO, and then some other partners. Um, that's focused on this problem of illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. As you may be aware, or maybe unaware, there's a huge problem with these massive dark fleets of fishing vessels going around and fishing in areas they shouldn't be, and really just wrecking havoc on not only the environmental sanctity of the region, but also the economic sanctity of the regions. And, you know, big fishing fleets are in the macro, but on a micro basis, individual fishing vessels are also wrecking havoc on the environment. And so what happens is these fishing vessels are usually broadcasting something that's called AIS, Automatic Identification Service, uh, which tells us about who they are, where they are, kind of the, the properties of the world they operate in, and the properties of their vessel. But when they're doing illegal activities, these vessels turn their AIS identification off. So not only do we not know where they are, we don't know what they're up to, you know, what the parameters of their vessel are, and other critical information that we would need to enforce this environment. There's been a recent rise in a remote sensing modality called synthetic aperture radar imagery. Along with existing government investments in the synthetic after radar imagery, there's also been a lot of commercial investment in small satellites that are doing this sort of remote sensing over the world. And with this active form of remote sensing, we're able to pierce clouds, we're able to kind of see and monitor oceans in all sorts of weather conditions. And so the XV3 challenge is simple. Using synthetic aperture radar imagery, along with some supporting information about wind information and, and bathymetry, over certain regions, can you help us identify where fixed infrastructure, non-fishing vessels and fishing vessels are on the ocean? So can you detect them? Can you tell me what they are? And then can you tell me how long they are approximately, all in an effort to kind of curb IUU fishing? That's amazing. And I think, you know, when we think about what happens at the in the high seas, especially it's often in the dark, you know, obviously they can shut off their AIS transponders and they can operate in the dark. But I think it's any time that we have any kind of human activity that's nefarious of any kind, it always happens in the dark. And I think what was so cool about this technology is it gives us the capability of making the unseen seen. And that's, you know, that's something that I've, I've often been focused on. Fernando, you know, I think that this challenge is really amazing. And I know that the work that you guys do at Global Fishing Watch is really spectacular. In fact, um, we actually even use some of the, the data sets here at the Ocean Currency Network that you guys provide. Can you tell us a little bit about how some of that data is acquired now? And uh, it'd be really interesting for the audience to really understand how it is that you're able to sense some of this data. Yes. So the main data set that actually started the organization is the, the kind of data that we just mentioned, uh, automatic identification system from vessels, right? So this is a device that, you know, the, the vessel self-report themselves, their location, their identity. So Global Fishing Watch realized that we could analyze those signals at a global scale 
That's one thing which requires a massive effort there. And that's the reason why the organization is actually spin off from Google in partnership with two other environmental ONGs, Oceana and SkyTruth. And the reason is because they, these guys went to Google for assistance, you know, for help. How can we process and analyze such a, a massive amount of data? So then we created a, an enormous database where we, and, and this is actually being done routinely. So it's in near real time. We have AIS re, is retrieved by satellites. That's called satellite AIS. And that gives us, for example, offshore uh, locations and, and information about vessels. We have AIS from terrestrial receivers. And this is when the, the boats are close to shore. No, they report to these stations. So with that, we can then analyze the, for example, patterns of motion of many of these vessels. We can analyze the distributions, where they are, when, their sizes, their type. And based on that, we can infer their activity. So on top of that, we have a series of uh, machine learning models that extract further information. For example, there is a way to tell what a vessel is doing, what kind of fishing is doing based on the patterns of motion. And, and then Global Fishing Watch has some of these quite sophisticated models and they're very accurate. So with all that, you now we create this data set that goes into an interface that we call the Global Fishing Watch map that has several layers of information and make that freely available you know, to decision makers, to researchers. And basically, is we are tracking the global fleet and coming if offshore infrastructure as well, and making all that available. That, that's that's the, the vision of the organization. You know, making all this information available in a simple manner for free. So on top of that, then we realize well, there are many of these vessels, you know, that don't emit these AIS devices. And to be fair, let's make a qualification here. Not all vessels that do not transmit AIS are doing something illegal. First of all, AIS is not required for every single vessel, right? There's very small vessels are not required to carry that. Some still carry because it's a safety device, for example. And so there are many reasons why many vessels do not broadcast AIS. Some of these reasons is because they are actually shutting them down to do some illegal stuff, but not always. Now, the question is, in both cases, we want to know this information, you know, A, to track, you know, potential illegal activity. And on the second case, B, because for management purposes, that's very important. We need to know how many vessels are out there, what they are doing, how much stock they're catching, and so on and so forth. So that's why it's very important. So we realized that a complementary measurement to AIS or information would be satellite imagery. When we can image, you know, all these structures at sea and, and ships and whatnot, regardless of their AIS transmission or not. So then well, the first thing that comes to mind is optical imagery, which is great and it's global scale. Now, then we face some uh, limitations of optical imagery, right? Optical imagery relies on sunlight is a passive system. So if there is no sunlight, there is no image taken. So an optical satellite usually doesn't image at night. If there is cloud coverage, an optical imager, imagery cannot take an image of the surface, so you will not have an image. So then it came radars, in particular synthetic aperture radar. It's an active system, and 
therefore, radar is uh, almost insensitive to the atmosphere content. So it can penetrate clouds. It doesn't care about sunlight, so it can image at night. So basically, we have here a tool that can be constantly imaging the oceans at a global scale. That's the latest technology that we incorporated. And it's just one further clarification that, and Reed, we touch on this. So we, we want to be ready for the explosion, for the commercial explosion of SAR. That's mm -hmm. something fairly recent. And a reason for that, because not too long ago, SAR satellites were, you know, by law, only allowed for scientific and military purposes, right? So this was open to commerce in general more recently. So now companies are starting to design and launch their own SAR constellations. So we expect, because of the potential of these systems, that this, there will be an explosion in the commercial sector. So, and we would like to be ready to use this data. No, and I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, and, and, but it's not just SAR technology. I think that's going to make a massive impact. I mean, you've got companies like Hawkeye 360 that are actually looking at RF signals uh, at sea, and then uh, you've also got Horizon Technologies, which I think is is actually probably a, a really interesting technology. Those are two different t uh, styles of technology, but I think now we're starting to see the value in data. And I think what's really interesting about this is like you know. And, you know, we were talking about how we're collecting data, we're, we're compiling this data, we're using machine learning to curate this data. I guess the next question I would have back to you, and this is going to tie back into the actual challenge, is what is the value of this data? Who are the customers of this data and how can you stay alive as a company, uh, you know, collecting and, and curating this data? And I'll, I'll throw that to Ritwick first. I think the best part of the government is that we don't have to rely on any commercial ventures to stay alive. You know, we really need to collect this data and gain intelligence from it in order to support agencies like the National Maritime Intelligence Office, the Coast Guard, who actually own the enforcement operation um, for our for our domestic waters and the and, and international waters. Again, protecting the economic sanctity of our fishing zones of our exclusive economic zones, uh, as well as those of our of our allied nations, is really important. And so understanding when, where, and how these illegal fishing activities are taking place, having timely intelligence to actually go in and interdict uh, some of these things is critical. In addition, from a civil science perspective, fishing in one region directly affects life in another. And so understanding how illegal fishing around the world is having larger ecological and climate impacts is of essential value to us, not only from a civil science perspective, but also from a national security perspective, because again, the safety of, of our economic zones, the safety of, of our ecological zones is of direct relevance to our national security. And again, the, the government has been collecting synthetic after radar imagery forever, both NASA, NOAA, our partners over at ESA, um, you know, they have massive constellations that do this on, on a daily, hourly basis. And we're finally getting to a stage where not only do we have the access to that data, uh, repeatable, regular access to that data, but also finally the research world has caught up on the ML side of things, uh, machine learning side of things, where we can start exploiting that data at scale. And so this is how we want to use it. This is what we're excited for. And certainly, again, uh, something that our allied partners are, are looking for as well. It is extremely important. And I think we're talking a lot about illegal and unregulated fishing However, fishing, uh, fish in the ocean, there's over, you know, several, I think it's over a billion people that rely on fishing as a, as a food source on planet Earth, planet ocean, depending on how you look at it. But 
when we fish from the ocean, it's a tragedy of the commons, right? And I think with this technology, it also gives us a little perspective of exactly what we're doing to the ocean. Fernando, um, I'd be curious. It's like, you know, obviously we want to be able to stop people who are for fishing illegally, but what about the people who are fishing overfishing and taking too much from the ocean? Is it possible that we can start to measure that so that we can determine what the real expense is to the tragedy of the commons? Yes, actually, it's one of the products that we make is called fishing effort. So we have, you know, we produce these maps at fairly high resolution. They are the end product of analyzing all this global AIS data when we have satellite imagery. And on top of that, analysis by our analysis team. And this provides fishing effort and we can start then to constrain stocks in different parts of the world as well. So... There are things that we can address with this kind of information, which I also was surprised to find out because I didn't know. It turned out there are different regulatory fishing entities and some vessels that might, because of their jurisdiction in, in, in where they are fishing, you know, they could report to either of them. Some report to only one, some report to both. So it turns out that, you know, in cases like this, these fishing entities, they have different information and sometimes even contradictory. So when they release these official reports on mm. stocks, the numbers actually don't agree, and they don't agree at all sometimes. That was amazing, the, the size of the discrepancy. Yeah. And it's because they don't have complete information. They don't have the same information among them. And so this is the kind of stuff that we can help improve, for example, right. regarding the stocks. Yeah, I think that's going to be really helpful. And I, I think one of the, the really important things here is that I think from a traditional standpoint, we're all, you know, at least Fernando, you and I, we're in the private sector. We're, we're building companies. Our focus might be on the environment, but we have responsibility to shareholders and all those kinds of things. And so um, one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about is that while we still have to have that fiduciary duty to our shareholders, we also have to try to figure out how to work together. Um there's so many times where I've been to UN meetings at the UN, whether it's General Assembly or it's one of the conference of parties, where I hear the same thing over and over again. And it's like, we need to have a way to be able to share data, be able to, you know, and what we're doing at the Ocean Currency Network is trying to help solve that. But I'd be curious to hear from you, Fernando, you know, how do you see this playing over the next three to five years? Because we really don't have a whole lot of time to sort this out. You know, how do you see us all coming together as a, you know, global collective of crew members of Spaceship Earth to try to figure out how to solve this problem? What's the best way to kind of pool our data together and get to the solution? Collaboration is one key aspect in that. First of all, this will require to solving this problem, you know, the environmental issues in the ocean that relates directly to the climate crisis will require a massive effort. This is not a single company effort. So there is plenty of work to do. That means we need help. Every company working on these issues alone will not be able to do as much impact as they would like. So collaboration is one key aspect, and we embrace that. And we have many projects that are collaborative efforts, you know, and they work perfectly fine. No conflicts at all there in, in regarding funding, regarding the division of tasks. So this is very doable. So the other thing is we always push forward for transparency. That's what we want to basically where, you know, as has been mentioned already, you know, we want to illuminate all these dark activities. So we want to make activities, transactions, in particular 
uh, on the global ocean, which is our domain, transparent. And that means transparency to the general public, so they know what's happening, so they, they are informed about issues being discussed in the table, and therefore they will have you know power to make decisions when it comes to, for example, voting. And the other uh, sector there that will benefit greatly from transparency are the decision makers and governments overall. So uh, another sector that is a client of the kind of products that we produce are governments of developing countries, for example, that they don't have the infrastructure to monitor, you know, their regional waters, for example. So we have some partnership with many of them and they, they happily give us their, for example, AIS or VMS data in order for us to analyze it, process it and produce a higher level product that we give back to them and so they can take advantage of that. Right? So there is this not-for-profit model that is very sustainable, actually. That's a way forward that I see, not necessarily thinking on what kind of product we can make to profit from. That is, that's not necessary in this domain. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the best profit is going to be the return on impact and having a healthy ecosystem because that then will funnel other economic drivers as well. So the other thing we, we want to just go ahead and really quickly ask is about the workshop that you guys have got coming up. What can you tell us about that? What, what can we uh, expect to, to see come out of that? So for the last three years, we've hosted the workshop on artificial intelligence for humanitarian assistance and disaster response at NURPS. NURPS being one of the premier artificial intelligence research venues in the world. And again, you know, the common thread of this conversation has been partnership. HADR is one of those things which is global. Uh, we have partners working around the world, solving many different parts of the problem. Some are focused on evacuation. Some are focused on resource allocation. Some are focused on stopping illegal fishing. And all of them have had a recent interest, or at least have companies come to them and say, hey, we have this cool AI that we'd love to demo with you. Or they themselves have put in some internal R&D towards using AI for some of their efforts. But again, it's, it's been in bits and pieces. Uh, so this workshop has been, for the last couple of years, a branding place for AI researchers who are working on the cutting edge, things that never existed before, but they do now as a result of the work of these fine folk. And HDR practitioners, people who are in the field uh, getting things done, really making a uh, dent into the humanitarian assistance and disaster response mission, and getting them together in the same room to share research to share guiding principles, to share challenges that the, the HADR world still faces um, in an effort to not only inform the HADR world of what is possible and what AI can do either today or in the near future, but also help AI researchers steer their research into a more meaningful and impactful fashion. I mean, as researchers, I'll be the first to admit that we can go off onto our fanciful tangent uh, and start doing things that don't really matter or you know, there are a couple of uh, crews derived from where we initially started. And so this workshop just serves as a way to kind of unify us, get us on the right track, make contacts. I mean, it's, it's overall a, a really good time. So if you go to www.hadr.ai, you can see our call for papers, which is open until, you know, it's been open, but it's open until the end of next week, I believe, for this year's workshop. But also, it'll be happening in December this year. So please sign up to attend. Please, if you have any, any research interests, please sign up to uh, submit you know, your research. We also this year have a call for challenges and call for retrospectives. So for challenges, you can su submit a very brief abstract. I think we said 150, 200 words of 
a challenge that still impacts your community today and how AI could potentially help solve it, or a call for retrospectives, which is a very informal kind of 12-page slide deck or less on how you've applied AI in the field, how it's worked and how it's failed. And so we really want to expand the conversation past the academic research and start talking about actual deployments and fieldings of this technology. Great. This is really great to kind of see. And, and I think it's definitely timely. Um, in the X view challenge as well, we've talked a little bit about that as well. You know, how, how can people find out more information about this? So for XView, go to iuu.xview.us. Uh, that's the challenge website. Not only do we have extensive technical documentation on the webpage, but once you sign up for an account, you'll be able to download the data. You'll be able to download the technical white paper that we have on the data set and the challenge. Uh, and we also have a Discord channel that you can join um, where competitors are having active discussions about the challenge and, and making teammates and such. So iuu.xview.us is kind of where you'll get that information. We also have links to great resources from, again, our friends at Global Fishing Watch on the website, which will tell you more about the problem of just monitoring global fishing and all sorts of things, right? Not just illegal fishing detection, but monitoring stocks, uh, monitoring vessel movement, um, tons of things that they're currently working on that have been impactful in the past and will be impactful in the future. So if I'm listening to this podcast right now and I'm thinking about, you know, maybe a problem that I'm specifically attached to because maybe my scientific board has said this is a problem that we need to focus on. You guys are looking at the entire board of problems. And maybe could you guys give me your top three big problems that you feel like need to be solved right now? And maybe to those that are listening, there maybe there's somebody that pops up and says, oh, yeah, I know how to fix that. Uh, Rick, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Fernando. For me, I think one of the biggest things is kind of understanding just the normal environmental cycles of our oceans, ocean currents, ocean weather, uh, kind of all the different phenomena that, that happen there. Can we understand and estimate the size of garbage patches? I think there's a lot of things that we're just not looking at within our own oceans, which as, as you mentioned, it's not really planet Earth, it's planet ocean that we should be aware of. And whether we like it or not, it's impacting all of us and all of our healths, via microplastics and other things. So if, if you have solutions that can help me understand the health of our oceans, and you know you believe that can be a viable business, please reach out to us at DIU. It's an area that we're really, really interested and actively invested in. But Fernando, please yeah. tell us more about things that we can do or should be doing. Absolutely. Before that, let me just mention one important aspect of the challenge. So mm -hmm. to our knowledge, we have constructed the largest synthetic aperture radar data set that has been labeled for training and validating machine learning models. That alone is of high value, we believe, if you want to subscribe, you know, and even not necessarily compete for the price. So going back to the challenges that they are, that's, that's a good question because object detection at sea and with SAR imagery is nothing new, actually. We have been doing that in smaller scale. So the, the, there are a few problems or limitations with that. One is that most pipelines, they include a great deal of human analysts, right? So you can get good detections from SAR imagery with decent ancillary information from each detection, but that comes with a huge effort from, you know, annotators and analysts with a domain expertise. 
So that's one thing that we need to remove from the pipelines if we want to apply this at a global scale and in an automated fashion. So then is when you ask the question, why AI? If we have been doing this actually, and there are companies that actually have a for-profit model around it, they sell these products, right? You ask them, I need detections of vessels in certain region of the world, they will grab, you know, and uh, a set of imagery, sometimes of their own constellations. They will put their analysts to work on those images and they will give you good detections of vessel detections. Now, that way is not feasible if you want to monitor these at global scale in an automated way. So this is where, you know, machine learning enters. And then there are the challenges when you try to do this at large scale and when you don't have a human looking at every single scene. So when you ask for the top three challenges, you know, so I can tell you a few of them from the top of my head. So one important aspect here is detections close to shore. And we have that in the XVU3 challenge as a sub problem. So we if not only if you detect vessels, but if you detect vessels well close to shore, then you will have you know, a higher score overall. And the reason here is because the closer you get to shore, you have a few things happening. You have more vessels. More mm-hmm. On the same images, you have a ton more vessels. So there is an exponential increase, actually, in the number of vessels uh, if you look at uh, number of vessels versus distance to shore. The other thing is you have smaller vessels. Smaller vessels, you know, are limited in some sense by the resolution of the imagery as well. So tiny objects are more difficult to detect. That's natural. Another problem, you have vessels clustered next to each other, right? So think, for example, a marina where vessels are actually almost touching each other. Hmm. That's a very difficult task for a machine learning algorithm, actually. Right. The human eye can immediately identify, you know, there are two, you know, vessels next to each other, say that those are two different objects. For machine learning algorithms, that's a little bit more challenging as they are currently today. So that's one aspect that we hope to improve with the challenge to motivate, you know, participants to come up with creative ideas. Another aspect of, you know, close to shore, and this is, this is fundamental, is the shore itself. It turns out we do not have a very accurate delineation of shoreline all over the world. Hmm. Right? So we have several data sets with different levels of accuracy. They have different you know, limitations. And we at Global Fishing Watch, for example, use a combination of this data. But ideally, you will want to extract the shoreline from the same imagery that you are analyzing. So that will be you know, a step forward. So those are you know, the challenges related to close to shore detection. Another of these challenges, so yes, just to finish here, the top three, uh, is in addition to detecting the objects, can you give us, for example, information about the size of the object? So in here, we have done in the past comparisons with a size of vessels extracted by human analysts from some companies that we work with. And we compare the, this size with the AIS information and there is an offset between even what a human can estimate versus what, you know, the ground truth data. So with a machine learning approach, we would expect A, to have that, you know, automatically being extracted and B, perhaps more accurately. So that's another big challenge in there. And I can name you a few others if you are interested. Well, I just think it's interesting because I think all of us have various capabilities and different superpowers. And I think when the folks listening 
they can start thinking about ways that they can kind of incorporate things. And I think that's, that's really what's important here, especially for the challenge. I mean, I think Brent knows that, you know, with our autonomous surface vessels, one of the things that we've been focused on is actually utilizing the tools to be able to sense munitions, chemical and conventional weapons that have been dumped in our oceans since 1918. There's over 1.6 million tons of it. And we're on a mission to, you know, hopefully remove it because just like you measuring the the fish stocks, you know, it was I think it was Dr. Jim Porter who's on our team. He uh, he was the one that actually correlated the connection between human health cancer and you know, basically different types of cancers to the types of uh, munitions that were left in the ocean. So this is like this is really gets back to this this core theme, which I think is that really truly understanding what we have in the ocean, you know. Rick, you're right. This is planet ocean. We only have one. It is the largest carbon sink on the planet. It is a source of food for so many. And because we don't have enough data, we don't have enough real-time data because we're not collaborating, it's all going to pot. And so I think what this is really showing us is that there are many options for us to be able to take this data. But I think what's interesting, Fernando, is what you guys have been able to do with Global Fishing Watch is take a bunch of different data sets to kind of really tell a story. And I think that's where this comes in. It's like, yeah, we can throw sensors in the ocean. We can grab raw data. What really makes sense is the curation of that raw data and really truly understanding what is happening, you know, almost to the point where I can see a future where, you know, next to the surf report on the news, we're we're seeing an ocean report, right? We're seeing an index report of how healthy or, or how bad things have gotten because it really needs to make sense to not just us that, that, you know, that have got our heads in the trenches, but it needs to make sense to the grandmas of the world or the 12-year-old kids that are watching the news. And so I think that's one of the outcomes I see happening with this uh, this challenge that you guys are producing. It's really getting us to think in, in different ways. And so this is really exciting. Um, Let me emphasize yeah. one thing real quick, too. That Again, the scale of the problem that we're proposing to you guys, as Fernand mentioned, it's huge. It's over 66 million square kilometers of imagery. with over 220,000 vessel and infrastructure annotations. To run analytics over that in an efficient amount of time, right, 15 minutes to analyze a, an entire SAR scene is, is a huge challenge. And we're really hoping that we can get the community excited and motivated to get after it. Amazing. So before we close, generally, we'd like to ask our guests if there's anything that they need or would like to see the humanitarian AI community focus on relevant to machine learning. So be curious to hear your guys' thoughts as we, we close this uh, podcast. Absolutely. So first takeaway, uh, participate in the XV challenge. Even if you don't compete, the data is really useful. Fernando mentioned it's the largest SAR data set of its kind um, and large to the extent of 66 million square kilometers with 220,000 annotations. And two, again, this world of ML and AI for humanitarian assistance and disaster response is, is huge and there's opportunities abound. DIE in the past has been involved in using AI to do damage assessment after natural disasters. There's certainly a lot of ML to be done to understand and better plan evacuations during and before hurricanes. You know, we need to solve some of these problems surrounding detecting slavery and other things. So tons of opportunity in this space. The field of development engineering is booming. Uh, The the investment in development engineering is booming. And certainly uh, I encourage people to to participate and reach out where they can, if they think that they can make an impact and, and partner with us on doing so. And again, just be conscious of your impact as a human being on this planet. Jeremy, you mentioned the tragedy of the commons. All of our actions impact each other, whether we like to know it or not, whether we like to think about it or not. 
And so, you know, ML and AI itself has an impact on the environment and being conscious about this, I think is also something that's of concern to us here at, at DIU. Fernando, any takeaways? Yes, and also related to my participation with XVU3 and helping out making this possible. I would say mostly for the machine learning community, you know, uh, some opportunities here that I think very interesting to you know, push forward is going beyond the you know, simple classification task of images, which is something that you know, we think of AI, that's one of the first things that comes to mind. Can we classify cats versus dogs, hot dogs, not hot dogs, for example? So here we are presenting you with a myriad of other tasks that, you know, in association to classification. Like I didn't get to, for example, the type of activity the object you are detecting is actually performing. That's a very hard to obtain, in particular from a SAR scene. So this is one aspect. The other aspect is the, as Ridwick mentioned, we are also providing, in addition to the SAR scenes, ancillary information with it. So we expect people to come up with creative ways of combining different sources of information, not just the actual image that you want to analyze. So we are providing, for example, uh, information about the wind fields, wind velocity, wind direction. Uh, we are providing the bathymetric, bathymetry field, right? depth of the ocean. So that's another interesting problem that is not that common in standard machine learning uh, tasks. So now we are gonna perform a classification, if you will, but in addition to the image you're classifying, you have this stack of information that you can use as well. And the third aspect, and we also want to see, you know, machine learning community also shifting a little bit towards that is the analyzing this, uh, these massive images, which are remote sensing uh, scenes. And this is, as we have been talking during the, the show here, is something that the private sector will explore even more in the coming years. And SAR data in particular, SAR technology, we expect the cost of it to decrease and therefore to be adopted more widely. So one thing you, you, you need to know is SAR images are gigantic. It's not, it's not something you are used to it. It's not something that you, you know, analyze on the fly on your laptop, for example. So you have to come up with clever ways how you're going to you know, pre-process that so your machine learning algorithm can actually do something with it. So those are three aspects that I am hopeful that we're going to, you know, push forward with this competition. Amazing. Well, it's an amazing competition. It's an awesome workshop. And I think that this is uh, exactly the kind of thing that we should be focused on, putting our collective uh, resources together to achieve some real amazing good. Because as we said earlier, we don't have a whole lot of time left to really solve some of these issues. So it's great that we're we're all focused and united on this. And so I just want to thank uh, Ritva Gupta and Fernando Paolo for being our guests today. Um, and it's great to be the guest host for Humanitarian AI. Brent, thanks for, for inviting me up. And uh, I think, you know, we've all kind of learned a little something today about the really the scale of the data. Uh, we've learned a lot about really what some of the threats are. And, you know, I think people always ask the question, it's like, well, gosh, this is horrible, but what can I do? And I think those that are listening right now, one of the things that I always say is that, you know, there is no Superman of the ocean, but there is a Justice League, and every single one of you has a superpower. It's a matter of how we come together and unite. And so I hope that this conversation has inspired you. I hope that it gives you the reason to join the XView challenge, and I hope it gives you the reason to kind of look at the workshop as well, because these are amazing, valuable resources for our planet. So I want to thank my 
guests for being here today. And this brings our edition of Humanitarian AI to a close.